welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, hello, hello. How are you doing? Pretty good. I really love when Zach just says hello when you say his name instead of just like... I'm always bracing for some like Me commentary. Too. Searing criticism. <laughs> so the, the hello is a pleasant welcome surprise. I'm very happy to be here. I, I just looked on Instagram. It's your one, my, one, blah, blah, one month anniversary. I have been married for oh, one month. The 30-day congrats. return policy has expired. So <laughs> Amanda, Sorry, Amanda. Yeah, You're stuck. stuck with me. Yeah, so that's great news for me. Good milestone. <laughs> All right. What are we drinking this week, Zach? So I needed a sort of detox because my mother was in town this weekend, <laughs> and we went drinking, uh, I think, every night she was here. Mm-hmm. And so... To do some detoxing, we're having uh, some Iranian Earl Grey tea, which was uh, provided to us uh, via Eloise, our producer, but through her friend. Um, why am I buying Termi. 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 Yeah. So All right. thank you to Eloise and Termi. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Good and strong. All right. Who are we talking to, Olga? So this week we're talking with Austin Ivory, who is a Catholic journalist and author. And back in 2014, he published a pretty well-known biography of Pope Francis called The Great Reformer, Francis and the Making of a Radical Pope. And we actually spoke to him last week after the publication of his latest book on the Pope. Yes. And that is called Wounded Shepherd, Pope Francis and His Struggle to Convert the Catholic Church. So a little bit of a change there, a little Mm -hmm. less triumphal. Great Reformer to Wounded Shepherd. (laughs) And it's crazy. A couple days later, um, after the book, was published and after we talked to Austin, um, the U.S. bishops released a statement uh, sort of saying that it perpetuated an unfortunate and an inaccurate myth that the Holy Father finds resistance among the leadership and staff of the U.S. Bishops Conference. Um, so nonetheless, people are reading it. Um, and so we get into what Austin's view of this papacy is and where there may be some resistance uh, to the reforms that Francis is trying to make. Yeah. So this criticism came after we talked to Austin. So we weren't really able to bring these critiques to him for his response. But it's clear that, you know, this is something that the bishops are talking about. Um, Catholic media is talking about. So it's, you know, Austin's right there in the middle of the conversation. So we're, as you know, always down to talk about Pope Francis on this podcast. So more Pope Francis content coming at you. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. So on Tuesday, Archbishop Jose Gomez was elected the first Latino president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. This happened at their fall meeting in Baltimore. Um, And Archbishop Gomez is currently the Archbishop of Los Angeles. Um, He's a Mexican immigrant and naturalized U.S. citizen. So this is a big shakeup at the USCCB. Right. He's a pretty big deal because he's made outreach to the Latino Catholic community in the U.S. a really big priority throughout his time in Los Angeles and as a bishop. And he's been a really strong advocate for both pro-life issues and immigration reform. Yeah, we have a really great profile in America from our uh, senior editor, J.D. Long Garcia. And Gomez says the main issue facing the church is the new evangelization. And he thinks it's important to show the work that the church is already doing. Um, And that's what young people are looking for. Mission, going out, helping people and living the faith. these are the types of things that are on his mind. Right. And so he's he's been, as Olga said, very involved in outreach to the Latino community, which is very important because that is the fastest growing part of the uh, church in the United States. Um, and in many parts of the countries, they don't have the resources they need to especially keep young people in the church. Yeah. And it, it was striking that, you know, we had our first Latino pope. 
Pope Francis. And that obviously shook up the church in mm-hmm. a number of ways, right? Sort of just drawing attention to different issues and different um, identities and different peoples. And what's this going to do for the church in the U.S.? I think, you know, it was we have our first Latino head of the U.S. Bishops Conference. Yeah. And this is actually a connection that Archbishop Gomez made in his interview with J.D. Um, he said, the fact that the Pope is a Latino makes us feel a responsibility for the church. He has been a great blessing for me and the church for Latinos. It's easy to understand some of the wonderful things Pope Francis is doing to reach out to people. So I think that is going to be something he brings to his leadership uh, at the U.S. Bishops Conference um, and kind of integrating Pope Francis's uh, vision for where the church is going. What's our next story, Olga? So that's a perfect transition into our next one. Last month, a study was released by the Pew Research Center, which found that the number of U.S. Latinos in the United States are no longer majority Catholic. So just 10 years ago, 57% of Latinos in the United States identified as Catholic. Um, And this year, that number is down to 47%, so below a majority. And like um, other demographics in the United States, most of that drop is because there's a rise of quote-unquote nuns. And so this is uh, Latinos who are saying that they are religiously unaffiliated, and that's up to 23% from 15%. Yeah, and this was striking because... I feel like in our conversations about the state of the church in the United States, there's kind of this like complacency because like the number isn't actually going down. And that's because there have been immigrants who, you know, are keeping the Catholic Mm -hmm. numbers maybe like artificially high for right now, as we see like mainline Protestant numbers take a drop. Um, And this is like, you know, I don't know, evidence to me that we can't be complacent that like We'll be saved by the Latinos. <laughs> right, right. It's it's just for me a really, and I think for all of us, just a really great reminder that like you're saying, Ashley, we can't just be complacent. Like we actually have to pastor to this community because with so many numbers leaving, we really have to prioritize Catholic Latinos and not just assume, oh, they're just going to be here for the long term. And hopefully know? things like representation are going to make a difference, right? Like having Archbishop Gomez as a first Latino uh president of a bishop's conference is hopefully going to have ripple effects down throughout the church, in addition to all of the other initiatives that are going on in the Latino church. Right. And this ties into our next story, too. What's that, Zach? Yeah. So coming out of San Diego, which is close to Los Angeles, I believe, um, Bishop Robert McElroy um, held a synod for young adults in his diocese. So this is uh, after Pope Francis had the synod on young adults for the wider church, universal church. Bishop uh, McElroy took this back to his home diocese um, and got, had 250 young adults participating over two months. Yeah, and so these young people came up with um, 24 proposals that were approved, um, and the major focus was how to reach millennials who have already left the church and to keep the church relevant in young people's lives. Right, and one of the most radical proposals was actually put forward by Bishop McElroy himself, who said that by the end of 2022... 25% of parish leadership positions should be filled by young adults. That's crazy. That is insane. Yeah. I mean, to sort of have this, like, quota and mandate. And, I mean, 2020, I mean, that's pretty quick, too, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you've got to transition some people off of parish councils and different things. And twenty that's pretty good representation because I'm pretty sure I bet it's close to— yeah. Single digits. Yeah. Now. And one hope I would have is that, you know, they don't pigeonhole young people into like social media jobs or just youth ministry. Like young adults, you know, I think in the church that goes up to 40, like we can be accountants and right. no, legal definitely. aid and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I we do have probably a more natural affinity for things like media and communications mm-hmm. because the world's just rapidly changing. But you bring up a super good point in that. Uh, where the church has seen success is in, in some other places is where it's had young people serve in a number of roles. Ashley, what's our next story? 
Last month, the president of Georgetown, John DeJoya, announced that the school would raise $400,000 a year to create a fund for the 272 enslaved persons that were sold by the Jesuits back in 1838. So just a quick recap. Back in April, students at Georgetown voted on a non-binding referendum, which would increase their tuition, and this would support a reparations fund. But it required approval by the university board, and in their meeting in June, the board of directors decided to not vote up or down at this meeting. Students, when they came up with this fund initially, or when they conceived of it, had proposed a $1 billion fund, which was um, set by descendants of the 272 slaves to finance, education, health, housing, and other needs. And um, and that would be funded by an increase, a $27 increase in students' tuition. Yeah, so right. there'd be sort of this direct connection between students today um, and past decisions that were made by the, univer- the Jesuits at the university. Right, but DeJoya, with this new fund that he announced last month, this is actually going to be taken from donations from people like alumni, faculty, students, and philanthropists. And the university wants to use this money to support community projects such as health clinics and schools. And there's been a lot of criticism against the way that Georgetown decided to create this fund right now. Yeah, one thing that's unclear to me is how you can call this something like a reparations fund um, and not just sort of like a fund in remembrance of the 272, right? Like it seems like what this fund is going to be used for and who the money comes from. So it's not coming from, it's just coming from donations and philanthropists and it's being used to fund services that are, as I understand, are open to the entire community, right? So I don't see the direct connection here. Well, that, I mean, I understand why students might feel like upset about how they were involved or not involved in the process. But the fact is their their fund um, would have also the money was going to go to education and health projects in Maryland and Louisiana where descendants live. Um, The you know, the twenty seven dollars per student would actually amount to less than the four hundred thousand dollar goal that DeJoya has set. Um, so I'm not I'm not really sure how well founded the criticism is. Honestly, I think that the biggest concern is that it's going to be really difficult to kind of hold the school accountable. And like Zach mentioned, these are going to services that are basically going to be open to the entire public instead of just being funds that are directly going to benefit descendants of these enslaved persons. And I think a lot of the guidelines that have been proposed, not just by students, but by descendants who are much older, um, had specific guidelines that would allow these funds to be explicitly for people who deserve these reparations. Right. I think there's still a lack of uh, criteria, accountability measures, and transparency for how all of it's getting brought together. Um, If you're interested in this issue, and there's a lot of things that go into it, and it's very complicated, uh, we have a conversation with um, one of the descendants of the um, 272 slaves, um, Dr. Anita Estes-Hicks, which is episode 105 in your podcast feed, which is definitely worth listening to. What's our next story, Olga? So last week, speaking on prison systems around the world, Pope Francis stated, we will be judged on this. Now, these comments were made during a November 8th meeting with national and regional directors of Catholic prison ministries from around the world. Right. And so he was his message was to people who work in prison ministry. But his call for reform was much broader than that. He thinks we need to be talking about the root causes of incarceration and how we reintegrate former prisoners into society. Right. He's sort of questioning the purveying logic that undergoes a lot of sentencing where it's more punishment and repression and not this sort of uh, restorative, um, you know, repay your debt to society. Right. And I really like that he 
reminded us as Catholics that we can't just view the incarcerated as part of this throwaway culture. Yeah. And he even mentioned just sort of casually through offhand, he's talking about, you know, even there's hope even for someone with a life sentence. And for him, he said, and life sentences are questionable. Yeah, he said he said there is no humane punishment with without a horizon. So if if you think you're going to be in prison forever, then your hope has been taken away. And for that, that Pope Francis sees that as inhuman. Right. And I think that that comment makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, Even people who are against the death penalty will typically say things like, oh, you know, we can just keep them in prison Mm -hmm. for life. We don't need to kill them. But Pope Francis is even pushing back on that a little bit, saying like, okay, well, where is this uh, instinct that you need to lock someone up forever even coming from? Right. And it's a really great reminder that we're called to minister within the system that's there. Like, yeah, we can talk about reforming and abolishing these systems, but there are also people within these prisons that require our help and require, you know, like Ashley mentioned, they should have hope in their lives. And, you know, we should be the ones questioning the norms around prisons, especially as people living in the United States, which houses most of the prisoners in the world um, and where the system is, you know, intentionally set up to kind of keep these people out of sight, out of mind. So I'm glad that Pope Francis is putting them back in the news cycle. Joining us in studio today is Austin Ivory, a journalist and author of Wounded Shepherd, Pope Francis and His Struggle to Convert the Catholic Church. Welcome to Jesuitical, Austin. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're very excited. So this is actually your second book on Pope Francis. The first was the 2014 biography, The Great Reformer. And this book, as I mentioned in your intro, is titled Wounded Shepherd. So I'm wondering if we could break down those two words and how they apply to Pope Francis. So in what ways is he wounded? Mm. Well, he says that, that we need to be a church that accepts its wounds, that is open about its wounds wounds and that's part of the you know the theology isn't it that that we have a we believe in a wounded savior who and through his wounds we are healed so the it's about humility it's about acceptance of woundedness it's about mercy it's about all those things which he embodies in his leadership that's what i'm trying to capture in the title but obviously there's also a sense in which yeah, he, he's faced a lot of criticism. Uh, there's been a lot of resistance to him. So there's also a sense in which he's attacked and he's bearing that as well. I think all that's in the title. Are any of those wounds self-inflicted? Well, you know, um, he's made mistakes. And in fact, the chapter in the book called A Church of Wounds, which is about the sex abuse crisis, deals, of course, with one of his big mistakes, one of his failures actually to discern properly, which he then came to recognize. Um, so, yeah, of course, he's, you know, he's made mistakes. Absolutely. Now. Wounded, as you mentioned, is there's the theological term, but also it, there's a sense that evokes embattled, I guess. In, in what ways is Francis being wounded or uh, attacked or criticized? See, I don't see. I wouldn't use embattled or beleaguered because I I think the way he looks at this is that he is calling the church to a, a process of conversion of change, and that's encountering resistance because conversion always does meet resistance. I mean, in our own lives, often the moment where we are as it were, when we have the invitation to convert, that's often the moment when we encounter within ourselves the greatest resistance. So I think that's how he views it. He almost stands back uh, in a very Jesuit way and says, there are these different spirits on the move here, you know, and of course there's resistance. That's part of it. That's part of human freedom, if you like. So I don't think he's, I don't think he's kind of bothered by it uh, in, 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 a, in a deeper sense. I think he's concerned, of course, for the unity of the church. I think a lot of people who are very opposed to Francis, and we're talking here, by the way, about a party within the church, 
you know, I mean, it's a small group in many ways, but on the other hand, it's a, a small section of a large group of people, so it's still a large group of people, mm. uh, really do intensely dislike him and have kind of withdrawn their support from him. Uh, and I think that that's painful to him, of course. And what's the most neutral or good faith way you would describe those critics? What are what are they what are they upset about? What are they resisting? I, I think, you know, if we look at the resistance of Francis, a lot of it centers on fear of um, the church capitulating to the modern world. So for a lot of people, the church represents a kind of bastion against change, a bastion against all the things that they might be running away from, uh, which are not good things, you know, relativism and individualism and those things. And so they often will project onto the church this image of, a, of an unchanging static institution outside time. And it upsets them when the church appears to change. So I think we have to understand that some of this resistance and criticism is coming from people who are deeply troubled by, you know, the modern world and, and are troubled by change. And, and we have to reach out to them lovingly. And I'm trying to do that with this book in a way. I'm trying to say, look, you have to understand how he thinks and what he's doing here. He's not undermining the doctrine of the church. Far from it. He's helping us to live it in this new age where we don't get support for Christian faith from law and culture. In, to move into the second titular word, uh, shepherd, in what ways does Francis understand himself as a shepherd? You started to allude to it there, I think, at the end. He uses the image a lot of the good shepherd. Uh, the good shepherd, the great image, of course, of, of God, of, of the father. But he talks a lot about the uh, the gaze of the good shepherd. So the way we look at the world is really important to Francis. And in a way, the invitation he's making to us all in the church is to adopt the lens, look through the lens of the Good Shepherd with the heart of the Good Shepherd, to look upon a wounded world and a suffering world and to want to embrace it, to walk with it, to want to save it. You know, like in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius when God is looking down on the world and he sees, you know, people suffering and in pain and he sends his son. <laughs> you know, his response isn't to give them a lecture. His response isn't to roll, roll his eyes or, you know, or, or, or read them a list of things that they must do, but rather to, to move out into the world, to walk with people, to help them, to rescue them to save them and that's the gaze i think he wants the church to embrace that's the shepherd that that uh, that he wants us all to be we he, we're all called to be that that shepherd yeah can you describe a little bit you mentioned kind of how as like a spiritual director in the jesuit sense that's kind of how he sees his leadership what does what does that mean how does his jesuit formation and experience inform his leadership so if you go on, a, on a, an Ignatian retreat, you do the spiritual exercises, whether you do them for a whole month or a week, you have a director, somebody who walk, who accompanies you. Now, they're not the people that change you, right? They help you. They provide the space. They point out the temptations and the obstacles to change, and they help you understand what's going on. Which is a maddening experience in some sense, because in a lot of ways, I find myself where I'm like, no, just tell me what is <laughs> right. God saying. Exactly. Right? No, and that's very important, because in fact, they the, the, the spiritual director respects that basically what's going is you and God. Right. And they don't want to interfere with that. So they're, they're helping and they're assisting the process. So that's really the image I have of him of the church. He's almost like the world's spiritual director or the universal church's spiritual director guiding the church through, you know, very difficult times often and helping them to understand what's going on, allowing the spirit to do its stuff. So is there like a, maybe some people who are critical or frustrated with Francis are similar to me on a retreat where they're like, what is God saying? Yeah. No, just tell me. Yeah. Like, and, just, I, and, and just give us the rules. You know, right. Just tell us what to do. Yeah. Right. Because rules are really helpful in some some instances. Of and course. They make me, yeah. Of course. And he's, you know, in no sense against rules or, or laws or, or doctrines. But it's very important that ultimately 
um, we have a relationship with God. You know, that, that's in a way the purpose of the church and the purpose of the Pope is to help people into that relationship. And that's a relationship that rests on freedom. You know, we can only love in freedom and we can only accept God's love in freedom. And actually embracing that freedom is possibly one of the hardest things we have to do. The book looks at several episodes in Francis's papacy thus far. And one of the biggest ones and one of the most substantial chapters is on Laudato Si, which is Pope Francis's encyclical on the environment. What made that such a sort of bombshell moment in Francis's teaching and pontificate. One of the things I want to do with the book is to find out where this thing came from. <laughs> because I wrote when I read <laughs> this the, being the, Laudato Si. Sorry, the encyclical Laudato Si on, on because it appeared in, in 2015. I mean, we knew it was coming obviously about a year before, but when I was finishing my biography in 2014, it had been announced this thing was coming and I was thinking, well, hang on, he's never talked about ecology when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And I was genuinely curious at that point. I, you know, I felt as a writer, you know, heck, I've missed the story. <laughs> but actually when I went, when I did go into the origins of it for this book, I discovered actually he really didn't talk about it, but there was this kind of growing awareness. I realized when I got very involved in that. So there was this gradual awakening and then there's this moment when the Latin American bishops get together in 2007 when the bishops all have these stories about environmental destruction and they begin to see listening to each other and he begins to see there is something very important happening here which is that the cry of the poor and the cry of the earth you know the suffering of the earth and the suffering of the poor are really the same thing and that you can see and I trace in the chapter then you know from a parasita to laudato see you can then see the, 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 the link but that said I still think the idea that he should do it as this major encyclical I think came to him very late. I think it was a major intuition in prayer, but I know he was impatient to get it out. And, the, and that it was an encyclical adds weight because... Absolutely. It's, it's it, well, it's the, the most authoritative kind of church teaching or papal teaching, which is when he issues this uh, you know, circular letter. Normally, uh, an encyclical is written to bishops. In this case, it's written, of course, to all earthlings, to right. everybody on the planet. You know? And you compare it to Rerum Novarum, the 1891 the very, social encyclical. The very first one. Which, and, of course, the reaction to Laudato Si was very similar to the reaction at the time. So 1891, Leo XIII, Pope issues this extraordinary encyclical saying, you know what, what the market decides isn't enough. If the market produces exploitative wages, that's wrong. You know, workers are entitled to a just wage. He talked about trade unions. And the European haute bourgeoisie, the businessman, said he's gone mad. This, what does this Pope know about this stuff? You know, he's a Marxist. He's a, and it's very fascinating, exactly the same reaction to Francis over this. You know, what does the Pope know about ecology? Real indignation, you <laughs> <Right>. know. <laughs> uh, and of course, now, you know, I mean, even within a few decades, what Rerum Navarum was talking about, you know, we now completely accept as part of the you know Catholic ethical universe, and I think in twenty thirty years time we will all be to be Catholic will be to be ecological. But we're still in this. So there's a prophetic quality to Laudato mm -hmm. Si where he bursts out. You know, this thing bursts out. The church isn't ready for it, but it's actually extraordinarily prophetic. Yeah, no, I found that like at least in my circles, like people outside the church are much more open to it in Absolutely. some ways. Yeah. than, than and, and, and again, themselves. I tell the story in that history actually in the in the chapter. There's a guy called Thomas Insua who's an Argentine who gets very involved in this, and he discovers that people exactly the Catholics are the ones who are the last to wake up to this. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, moving ahead a little bit, you one of the big themes of the book, and I guess this is just a theme of. Francis's pontificate is the reform of synods and synodality. Um, you say that's at the heart of the way Francis is converting the church or reforming the church. 
I think we have one one request if you could pass it along <laughs> yeah. at any point. Yeah. We would love a new word for synod. Yeah. Yes. It really just like puts people yeah. to sleep. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Just young people in general. We're yeah. pretty synoded out. It's like a yeah. um, I get that. Yeah. I, I shall, you know. Yeah, if you could pass that I'll along. I'll do what I can. Thank you. Um <laughs> but, but, but it needs to be said. Could I just say in defense of the word? Okay, well let's it hear it. It comes from a very beautiful Greek word, synodos, which means to walk together. And that's really what it is. It's actually about mm-hmm. walking together and participating and listening to each other. That's really what it is. So a synodal church is a church in which there is participation and listening and people are involved, you know, in the things that affect them. Well, like true ugly Americans, we are ignorant of languages that are not our own. <laughs> but I'm wondering, you talk about Francis's experience as Archbishop of Buenos Aires with synods, and he was sort of a a rapporteur of sorts for them and had a very negative experience. What what was he doing then and how did that influence his idea of them? So his involvement with, uh, uh, with the synod wasn't so much um, a synod in Buenos Aires, but rather what's called the synod of bishops in Rome. So every few years, and this has happened for decades, the bishops get together in Rome and they consider a, a subject of major importance and then they produce at the end of it a document. So he was involved in a number of synods before he became pope as when as when he was a bishop and a cardinal. And what he experienced was um, Roman centralism. In other words, the bishops came together, they were free to speak you know, but actually the final document was basically written by the Vatican, which simply reaffirmed everything that the Vatican already said. Uh, and it, were, I mean, I've been reporting on synods for many years. I remember under John Paul II, you know, at the end of his pontificate being at a synod and um, uh, Pope John Paul was f- sort of appearing to fall asleep as he, as, he, as he had this document in front of him at the beginning of the synod. And the joke in the press hall was that he was reading the concluding document. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so predictable. So it had become a really dull uh, uh, and sclerotic institution. And so one of the great achievements of Francis is to make it dynamic, is to make it real. In other words, you know, actually people are free to speak and they have an impact on what results. And change happens and we've already seen in this pontificate change happening as a result of synods which of course again deeply upsets the change phobic right. among us but but is i think a brilliant development so you you open this book the the book with a um description of this meeting you had with pope francis in 2018 um in which he had one criticism of your writings and and that was that you're too kind to him um so i'm wondering you know what what criticisms do you have of mm. his pontificate. Yeah. No, I mean I think I think um it's a legitimate criticism. <laughs> but I'm I think about what a what a You're even you're even complimenting his criticism. <laughs> that's, right. that's right, exactly. The Pope must be right, even when he criticizes me for being too nice to him. Absolutely well well spotted. Yes, and for brother. <laughs> well I'm such a sensitive writer that imagining the Pope saying that there was something wrong with my writing would have just well, devastated, no, no, devastated well, me. Well I do I do say in the book that I froze for a moment because of course I immediately thought of course I've made mistakes, you know, the previous but which I had to correct. I was thinking, oh no, which of these mistakes? <laughs> I felt like, you know, and then he, but there was a big sm- impish smile on his face when he said it, so I knew something was coming. But um, yeah, he said, benevolo was the word he used in Spanish, which kind of means indulgent. You're too kind of indulgent. And I, and I said to him, you know, I'll promise to be tougher on you in the future. He said, yeah, that's good. But um, I, I, I think actually what he meant uh, was that perhaps I make him out to be uh, too big a figure, in other words, that I attribute to him too much, that there's a danger, if you like, of putting him on the pedestal. Am I critical of him? You know, I, I acknowledge in the book the mistakes he's made. Um, he's the first to admit them himself. I don't see my role as standing in judgment over him with a kind of checklist, you know. And in, and on the reforms, I just talk about how the reforms have been very slow, but I've also sought to explain why they're slow, and I think that's a deliberate 
policy on his part. So, you know, a lot of people do express frustration with the pace of reform. I, I more see it in my role as a writer to explain how he thinks and how he sees it and then to talk about the result of it. You mentioned that there are people who are frustrated with the pace of reform. So that obviously there are people who think he needs to go further. Yeah. Um, but there are also people who are uncomfortable with the current pace of yeah. change. Um, and he's he's talked about, you know, like he's open to criticism, like he wants that healthy dialogue. But some of his critics say, no, you're not responding to us when we say, you know, we, we're confused about what you're saying about divorce and remarried Catholics. There are these um, bishops and cardinals who pose the dubia questions about his position on that. So why, why isn't why does he say he's open to criticism mm. and then not engage with those so, voices? Good, is, is, is he right to not? Yeah, do it's, that? it's a great question. I mean, I think you have to. The word discernment has to be used here again. Okay, so there's a kind of criticism which is a goodwill criticism, where where which he welcomes. Then there's another kind of criticism which is like the Jubia Cardinals, where they actually challenge him and they say, you know, you're a heretic if you believe this, and please clarify, you know, yes or no, <laughs> right? Uh, and he quite rightly doesn't respond to that. Because because that's a trap. They laid a trap for him. They want to know whether he's changed the law or not. He hasn't changed the law. He's changed the application of the law, or rather the application of the law has developed as a result of the synod. So, you know, there are situations in which he can't respond uh, because he, that would be to accept the frame of the, of the question or the challenge. And the other famous example where he didn't respond was Archbishop Vigano's attack on him in July 2018. And you know, I describe in the book, it's a very dramatic moment. You know, the whole Catholic world is kind of reeling from the shock of this thing. The Pope gets on the plane back from, from Dublin to Rome. Journalist asks him, you know, how is he going to respond? He just says, I, I, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to leave it to you guys. I remember feeling very frustrated by that response. Oh, yeah. 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 But it was a brilliant response because what he was saying was, look, I, I, and he said later, by the way, it was a, it was a movement of the heart. And he often does things because you know he experiences a sort of inter interior motion to do something he doesn't particularly necessarily think it through he just felt it was right for him not to say anything but also to say to the journalists on board go and do your work you know go and investigate find out who this guy is investigate those claims i thought it was fantastic because he was almost saying look i'm not going to respond you find out the truth and within about four days those claims had in fact completely and utterly collapsed and vigano i thought was made to look uh, ridiculous so in a way the pope didn't have to do anything now he did respond to the to the vigano attack and many other people who repeated that attack in a series of declarations and homilies and so on that he made from rome where he was saying to the people of god Let's let's look at the spirits here. And he talked about the great accuser, how Satan, you know, this spirit of accusation. What, what, where is it coming from? Again, I'm not going to defend myself here. I don't have a. I don't need to defend myself. But I'm going to help you to work out what's going on here. Can you think of anyone that's modeling good critical dialogue, or are there any quote unquote good? critics of Pope Francis. Oh, yes. And I think, you know, there are certainly many good-hearted uh, critics. Um, uh, look, I'll just take a, an example uh, who's in the book, actually, even though I'm a little bit critical of many of the things that she did, was Marie Collins, who's um, an abuse survivor, uh, who's been very critical of Francis at particular instances for his failures in her view to do what she felt that he had promised and so on. I, I you know, that kind of criticism, and there's a lot of that, um, is, is perfectly legitimate. I mean, I, in the book, I, you know, I don't think Marie was right about that and so on, but that, that's, but, but she's absolutely, you know, the, the criticism is totally reasonable and it's good hearted criticism. And, and, uh, there are, there are plenty of other critics like that. Yeah. I, 
think that a lot of everyday Catholics and especially young Catholics maybe, you know, are looking at, okay, Pope Francis is reforming the church and the way that they measure reform is sort of in change in church teaching or change in church practice or development and change in practice. And so they're drawn to things like uh, communion for divorced and remarried or new environmental teaching or married priests or women deacons. But my takeaway from the book is that Francis doesn't have a checklist of church teachings or reforms or practices that he wants to change, that there's something deeper happening in his mm. conversion. Is that right? And like, what is the nature of that conversion? I, I, I've always said that that his, uh, he's not setting out to change church doctrine. He takes church teaching and doctrine for granted. He will never change it. Uh, and the popes don't on the whole. They safeguard it and they develop it. So it's more, his, his concern is not to change church teaching. His concern isn't to modernize the church in the sense of making the church more like the modern world. His concern... So should young people be disappointed by that? I mean, well, a lot they, of people will hear that and go, oh. Yes, uh, uh, they should be if they're looking for the church to be more like what they expect you know, some institutions or whatever to be, because I think it's important to understand what the church exists for. It doesn't, it, it exists to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel. And the church needs to change in order to change the world. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? It, it's not, it's not, I'm going to change the church so the church looks more like the world, which is often what some young people would say. Why can't the church be, you know, more, more this or more that? Um, because they need to understand what the church is really about. So it, the change is real, but it may not be the change that people are expecting. Now, one one thing that people do find very frustrating, and I go into this a lot in the book, is, uh, and I, just to illustrate this with a very kind of dramatic story, in 2015, he received in the Vatican, for the first time, I believe, a pope publicly received a transgender man, okay, Diego Neri, it's a great story, who had um, had a gender reassignment surgery, and he totally accepted um, him with his reassigned gender, later spoke about she who is now a him and so on and totally, and hugged him and said, you are a son of the church and if anybody has a problem with who you are, it's their problem, not yours. Brilliant, right? And then days later got up on the plane and denounced gender ideology. Yeah. Now, people would say that's a contradiction. I don't think it is. <laughs> you know, in other words, he does genuinely oppose genuine gender ideology. He thinks gender ideology is wrong. It's a violation of, if you like, the central notion of who we are. We are created male and female. But here's a man, here's a person with a, with a story, and he totally accepts that person as they are. And I think that living in that tension is, is what he does very beautifully, and I think what we're all called to do. But we, we often find it quite hard to do. Yeah. So, great reformer, wounded shepherd, what's next for Pope Francis? Are the, all the changes behind us? Is he just going to, you know, go into retirement? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. Or so, what's next for Pope so, Francis? So, uh, first of all, this is a pontificate still in full flow. Right? I don't think he's ebbing. On the other hand, he's entering in, into a kind of, I would say, mature final phase. I think a lot of the, the, the key things he came in with, and he didn't come with a huge plan, but he came in with priorities. You can see that now those have been implemented. He's embedding more now. So I, I think, in a way, it's, it's a papacy that's w w the direction is now kind of clear. How long it goes on for, of course, anybody's guess. Now, everybody knows he can't possibly stand down. And by the way, I think he will stand down when the time is right. 
Meaning not, he, he won't die in office. Well, he, of course he might. But what I'm saying is I think his intention, I mean, everything he said suggests that when he gets to the point where he feels that, you know, God no longer wants him there and when he's physically tired and so on, that he would step down. He said ben, that's what Benedict's done and Benedict changed the papacy. He's made that clear. Now, it doesn't mean he will, but I think. But of course, he can't even begin to think about that until... He's buried Benedict, you know. We can't uh, have three popes. You can't have three popes. You know, imagine the canon lawyers, you know, would have, you know, uh, uh, triple heart attack to have two retired popes. Uh, absolutely. And so we're going to get this extraordinary spectacle. The next big thing is going to be the first time in history one pope has buried a pre- his predecessor. And that's going to be a signal moment in the church. Now, I believe, I've always said that when that's happened, and not immediately by any means, but sometime after that would be when he would begin to discern the right time to step down. So th- that's my own sense. But look, you know, I think he's in the hands of God. He's in the hands of God. It's very hard to make these, make these predictions. But I've, I, know, I just saw him just now in Rome. I spent you know, a few minutes with him, talking to him. I was at mass with him. He does not look like a man who's fading. I mean, he's actually in many ways, people say, you know, he's in full flow now. So I think, you know, this is a pontificate that's still got a long way to run. So Austin, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy book tour to meet with us. We've got one final question for you, which we ask all our guests. Okay. If you could canonize anyone, living (laughs) or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would want to canonize Thomas Merton. Uh, if we say we did know who he was, yeah, right? Sorry, <laughs> who is yes. he, who is he and why? Uh, the great Trappist monk and writer Thomas Merton, who um, died in the late sixties, uh, very young, uh, as a result of a, an accident in Bangkok. Um, uh, a monk who lived uh, in in Gethsemane in Kentucky, uh, who's burst upon the world with his uh, extraordinary autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, then wrote a series of books, uh, which were just a huge part of Catholic uh, awakening. Uh, I think in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, really above all. Um, and I I uh, I continue to go back to Merton, and I'm always just astonished by his prophetic power. Um, and I think also, you know, he lived a lot of contradictions, and there's something about him that's so human and so modern and I find so easy to identify with maybe because he's a you know struggling writer and so on. Uh, <laughs> he wrestles with all the contradictions but I just think there's a humanity in him and yet shot through with this extraordinary prophetic wisdom and clearly a, prox- a closeness to God which which I find just enormously consoling and inspiring uh, and so I think to make him a saint along with Dorothy Day please at the same time <laughs> <laughs> and a big influence and he was a big influence on Francis he was you mentioned he was awesome well the book is Wounded Shepherd, and you can find it wherever books are sold. Congrats on it was just pub day, so congratulations. Thanks so much, Zach. Thank yeah. you. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you. Great to be with you. On. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to welcome a new member to our Patreon community. His name is Richard. It's a great name. My dad's name is Richard. Wonder if there's any relation. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps. They did not provide a last name. All right. <laughs> so Patreon, again, is how you can support the show and help, and it helps make it possible for other people to listen to. We know it's a, it's a big ask to get you to give money to something that we are giving to you for free, but we think you can do it. 
And we think you might feel strongly enough to want to do it. So again, you can find out about that at patreon.com slash America Media. And we always feel like it's a good thing to just remind people that we have a Facebook group too. We think part of the best part of a podcast is having a community. And Facebook is a place where you listeners can talk to each other about stories that we're discussing on the show. And we also chime in there and give our two cents once in a while. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week, I've got a consolation. This past weekend was spent celebrating both the birthdays of my mom and dad and also Enoch's father. So it was a lot of family time wrapped into two days. Um, But the consolation was in being able to spend time with Enoch's family. I've talked on the podcast before about the difficulties I've had in building a relationship with them and the moments where I was always listening to that dark voice that would just tell me like, these people are never going to love you and they're never going to care about you. And I'm finally at a place where they're super welcoming and they're like inviting me into their home and cooking and joking with me. And it just feels so good to know that even when I doubted it, God was leading me to this moment with them. Um, And it's just beautiful to just be in that intimate space with them and to just know that I'm creating more community with them. No, that's that's so good to hear that. That's so much family time, one. That's a lot of birthdays. (laughs) We're exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) But two, so good to hear that that's going that way. Yeah. What do you have, Zach? I also have a consolation. Uh, This past week, um, a friend from high school moved to... Brooklyn, um, which is exciting because I haven't seen this friend and just sort of sporadically here and there and haven't really gotten a chance to catch up with them. Um, It was someone who I was on the cross-country team with, which there were a lot of long, deep talks uh, in the cross-country team. There's nothing else to do when you're running, I'm told. (laughs) Um, And so it was really nice. And I was surprised that one of these, this conversation when we were catching up, um, just sort of quickly turned deep and like even spiritual. And even when you work in Catholic media and you do a podcast where you're having spiritual conversations, they're, they're still sort of rare in quote unquote real life. Um, and so the consolation is in sort of just the awe and surprise of having that moment happen with um, an old friend and the gratitude for him for being willing to go there. Uh, so that's my consolation this week. Nice. What do you have, Ashley? Um, I have a consolation. Uh, it's definitely one of those consolations that shows that you know, God isn't only there in the happy times. Um, so I, I had a friend visiting this weekend um, and we hadn't seen each other in a while. So we were catching up and then, you know, like an hour into the conversation, she tells me that she had uh, recently suffered a miscarriage. Um, and I, having had other loved ones go through this, I know how hard it is to talk about that um, and, and to go through it or, it's just unbelievably difficult experience um so one i was just grateful that she was willing to share that with me but then you know we we talked about it and she talked about you know the really hard few weeks she had gone through um but she also talked about like you know ending up in this place of you know still grieving but like in a place of hope and wanting to keep trying um and it was just such a like awe-inspiring example of like you know, she wouldn't use these words, but like resurrection, like there, there was a death and that is something to grieve. But like, even out of that, she still has hope. And like seeing someone go through that, I was just like amazed by her and by the way that God is working in her life. So yeah, that was pretty great. I'm so sorry she had to go through that, but thank (laughs) you for sharing that because that is really like inspired yeah like you and said. it's like I, this is something i've learned as i've gotten older is that this is an experience that a lot of people have gone through and a lot of people have you know it they you just don't talk about it because it's so painful um so i was i was grateful to her for opening up like that so 
All right, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out to Jose Sakakis, David Lorden, and New York 10R. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.